This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. My guest today is the soon-to-be medical doctor, Janice Bonesu. She is the embodiment of light and joy. Janice was raised by parents who were immigrants from Ghana, living in New Jersey. Her Ghanaian culture, alongside her experience of living in an immigrant community, has given Janice such profound insights into the problems of systemic racism in the United States. Janice's accomplishments astound me. She received her undergraduate degree from Johns Hopkins University, her MPH, which stands for Masters of Public Health, for those who didn't know like I didn't and had to look it up, from the University of Pennsylvania, and her almost MD from Ohio State University Medical School. She's excited to start her residency this June as a full-fledged medical doctor. And, as if that wasn't impressive enough, she's also a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force, soon to be promoted to captain in May. I met this intelligent, graceful, articulate woman completely by chance. I found her on Twitter and was blown away by a story she tweeted. So I DM'd her and she graciously agreed to visit with me. Get ready to have your socks blown off. Janice, I am so thankful that you were willing to visit with me today. Uh, Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for hearing my story, I guess, or reading my story, um, but then reaching out because it's it's something that I've just now wanted to speak about. And this is such a great way for me to start to exercise those words. That's awesome. Timing is everything, isn't it? And you can't plan it. It just happens. I think that's beautiful how we met. And I can't wait to, to share that with the audience. Um, well, you know what? Let's just share it now so that everyone's like, well, wow, how did they meet that? I'm so curious. Um, So it has it happens. I was looking through Twitter and I came across Janice's tweet. I can't remember the exact words. I only remember what I took away from it. Um, Can you tell us what exactly it was, the situation that you tweeted about that made me just in awe? Oh, Yeah. Um, so I'm a fourth year medical student and as a part of my curriculum, I've been spending time in the emergency room and I am specifically now doing traumas. Um, so just waiting for the worst day of someone's life and trying to help them through that. And, uh, there was a patient who came in a couple weeks back and she was in a car crash. And um, when, so one of the first things when that happens is you want to make sure you stabilize the patient's neck because that's where the spine starts. And if you move any so way, you could paralyze them. So mm-hmm. it's quite serious. And I was on C-spine duty. So I was behind her just holding her neck as stable as I can. And she was a little agitated, which 
initially we thought was because there are 14 physicians, nurses, everyone just like, you know, coming at you, trying to do stuff to you. Uh-huh. And so she started saying like, get off me, get off me. And we're like, okay, relax. Like you're in a safe place. And then she started spitting at me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which Gosh. It, in the beginning though, I didn't take it as, oh, she's spitting at me. I thought, oh, she's spitting at us. <laughs> I was like, oh, we are all being spat at because we are harassing her, you know? Um, And so one of the nurses got a mask and put it on her. And then um, next, because she couldn't spit to communicate, um, then she started speaking out loud. And she said to me, um, looking straight up at me, she said, get off of me, you dirty black monkey. And that kind of, I, I do, I try not to remember these things, but I do remember just kind of being frozen. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to raise my head up and see everyone staring at me because I yeah. just wanted to like disappear a little bit in that situation. I imagine. And um, my attending physician, who's kind of like the boss, um, kind of scooted me out and took the place behind her neck. Um, and eventually, you know, we, we left the trauma and let the other team handle it. But that's what I tweeted about. And yes. I was frustrated when I came home because I was sent home early from my shift and I thought it was because they didn't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't know which patient he would, he became too overprotective. He was like, Oh, don't go see that patient because mm. they're, don't go see, you know? And I was like, how am I supposed to learn medicine? Um, unfortunately, racism is part of my day to day. And how am I supposed to learn medicine if you're being That's- overprotective in this way? Or so he was doing what he thought was the right thing to do to protect you from this vile comment. But did you guys ever speak of it? Did the team come together and say, what was wrong with this? How can we handle it differently next time? You know, we're for you, we're with you. Did he think he was acting for you? I hate to criticize anyone. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is very easy and convenient. I have, as a 27-year-old, you know, Black person, I've never been in that situation before. So I can't imagine as a 40-plus-year-old white man, he would have never even dreamt. For sure. Yeah. So, no, we didn't talk about it, debrief about it. Oh, what a missed opportunity, right? One of the nurses did come and, you know, hand to my shoulder, kind of tell me, like, oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Yeah. Um, But again, I I just wanted to, like, I was like, oh, no. Don't tell me you saw that. Don't tell me you heard that. Uh, <laughs> just like Frank. Um, but, but your response is what I thought was the most mature. I don't know. That's the best word I can come up with. It was the most mature take on how to handle that. And you tweeted, you know, this was the situation. But then I realized I was not a victim of her racism. I was a target of it. How did you have the scope of mind to think of that and then put it in that terminology. That's how I've conceptualized this the whole 27 years of my life. I believe that the victims are women like that. I believe she's the victim of it. Um, And it's never been me. I never want it to be me. Um, And so for me, that's just, and, and that's how I'm able to not overly generalize about 
white people or people who don't look like me. Cause I'm like, you know, it's very specific to her. Like she's a yes. victim of racism and I'm the target in that situation. I think that is just genius. And it's come from a long time of thinking through this. I can tell. Mm-hmm. And I love how you said she is the victim of racism from how she's grown up thinking about it, but you don't seem to have any animosity towards her. And like you just mentioned, you almost even had a lot of compassion because you thought I'm dealing with somebody on the worst day of their life. She's angry. She's taking it out on all of us was your very first thought. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. compassion? I, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't put myself, I don't assume I'm overly compassionate. All I see is I, I just would never want to treat someone that way. And I can only imagine the type of turmoil that she has in her that at the point where your life is quite literally on the line, you mm-hmm. can't resist mm-hmm. but to say those words. I, I do have to feel bad for you. Mm-hmm. If we like, could all against evolution, like you're not self-preserving at all. Like I feel bad. And I think it takes your attitude, your mentality, your train of thought to um, this is what it's going to take for us to come together because it is, it's not that it wasn't painful for you, like you mentioned, and you didn't have some self-doubt in there even, but you are bigger than that. And I think that I was so inspired by that. I mean, so inspired. I'm so thankful that even if you treated that for one person, it was for me to learn that day. And it just changed a lot of my perspective. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Well, now we can jump into, we, we went kind of hard and now let's go a little easy. <laughs> let's just jump in straight to the topic. I like to go straight deep right away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah I'm not good at small talk, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if anybody knows that about me yet. What's the worst day of your life? Let's start. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. Okay. So let's Let's try some chit chat for a little bit. <laughs> if you could have three people over for dinner, they can be alive, dead, imaginary. I don't care. They could be like superheroes, whatever. Um, who would they be and why? Mm. I, <laughs> this question always makes me laugh because I'm like, if I could have three people over, I'd pick my three best friends, man. That would be a fun dinner. There you but, go. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, um, so I actually have an interesting, I lived in Ghana with my grandparents from the age one to six. And I, my grandpa, like I thought he could walk on water and he mm-hmm. passed away like when I was quite young. And so I would, a table at the dinner table for sure for him. Yes. And um, the second would have to be my best friend, Destiny, um, who's like a soul sister. Uh, she's Hispanic American. So mm-hmm. whereas I see things from the black American perspective, she's also educated and made me aware of things from her perspective. Mm. Um, so definitely wouldn't have a dinner without her. Yes. <laughs> and then, so the third is a wild card, right? I think I'm torn because Destiny, see, okay. So we would say we, <laughs> <It's> between, <laughs> she's already at dinner. Uh-huh. Um, between AOC, Alexander, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ooh, the congresswoman, yeah. or Angela Merkel, because oh. <laughs> I just adore those two women. They're so intelligent. They're so good at communicating in a way that brings people to the table rather yes. than including them. And I just, yes. I just, I would want to learn from them. And they are, the thing I love about both of those women, 
they say what they're for and who they're for, not what they're against. And what a difference that makes. Oh, absolutely. Right? Well, you just mentioned that you grew up in Ghana between the ages of one and six. So I'm really curious about uh, your early years. Tell me about all the joys and, and highlights of growing up and then some of the, the mishaps or hardships that came in while you were growing up. Yeah. So uh, my, I was born here in America. And at the age of one, I was sent to Ghana to live with my grandparents. And it was something, I say this now and my cousins are like, oh my gosh, your parents set you out. But I'm like, back in my day, (laughs) you know, back in the nineties, that's what all of our parents did because they were immigrants. They were Mm -hmm. trying to learn the system Mm -hmm. and had no support. Um, So in order to get us the one childcare and the type of rearing and Mm -hmm. to learn the language and the culture, we just all routinely went back. That and- is fascinating. <laughs> I did not know that that was something that um, a large group of people did. And I, I've actually read about that before. I've, I've read about people sending their children back to their home countries, but I have never met anybody oh, yeah. or a large group of people who were doing it at the same time. But now that you say that, it makes perfect sense. I can completely understand why your parents would do that. Yeah, I mean, and my mom will tell, and she's always like, she was like, oh, I cried every night. And I, it was still very um, emotional for them, but I loved it. <laughs> I grew up, um, and I mean, I, I would have had such a different childhood. Like, I grew up with all of my cousins. Um, the way we have our houses in Ghana, it's essentially families live together in a neighborhood. So I would be sleeping over at this cousin's house. I'd run to have breakfast at that cousin's house. Uh-huh. I was the perfect like free range childhood anyone should have. That's a great way to describe it. Well, it sounds like it was much more communal than individualistic as Americans typically are, right? Yeah. I mean, my older brother didn't even live in the same house I lived in. I ended up spending most nights at my aunt's house because she didn't have any kids and I wanted to be babied. Uh Um, I stayed at my grandparents' house, but everyone was my brother and sister. So I didn't actually know who were my brother brothers until we were coming back to the U.S. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) What a problem to have. Like everybody's my brother and sister, but that does shape your worldview, doesn't it? How lucky you were to have that as your as what was structuring your brain at the time yeah it's it was all for one kind of mentality um and my grandpa was the the head of it and so that's why i was just like oh man this guy is Mm -hmm. a mountain and he's fantastic Mm -hmm. and um coming to america was very challenging for me because of that i was excited to come and see my parents um, but at the same time i had to leave quite literally everything i knew i grew up I was a Ghanaian and then they were Uh like, oh, surprise, you're American and bye, you're leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I can't imagine the transition you had. Now, were you speaking English and do you, is there, uh, this is a very stupid question. I'm sorry. Is there a specific language for Ghana or is English the national language? Not a stupid language or question at all because um, the national language is English, but all of our culture is all of our day-to-day is conducted in our cultural language, which for my tribe is Chi. Okay. Um, that's all I spoke because I was never, I didn't go to work or school yet. So I didn't have to learn English. <laughs> so, so you I, come back at six yeah. and you're not speaking English. A word of English. 
And wow, that started probably my biggest challenge. So two, one was addressing the fact that everyone had a different perspective of what life in Africa looked like. Mm-hmm. And that was not my lived experience at all. So when they would say things about like no running water or what I was like, I felt that the situation in America was much more dire than what I saw in Ghana. I was like, this is how you guys live and you're judging us. Like uh-huh. just in tiny apartments, very secluded. I, I didn't understand it yet. Um, but then also they, they saw me as an outsider because of my accent. And I stopped speaking my language altogether because I wanted to perfect this accent that you hear today. And it's, it's probably the biggest scar I carry with me that I let something of myself go to sound like everyone else. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, that's a little bit of growing up like me. <laughs> so when you came back, so you have a brother, it sounds like you have other siblings, which, which position are you in your family? I'm, I don't, I don't know. Could you guess? I'm guessing the middle. I am the middle. How did you know? <laughs> I have two brothers. You have two brothers. You're you're sandwiched between them, huh? Nice. Yeah. Well, you're you you seem like a, a peacemaker, and the middle kid is usually the peacemaker. <laughs> I was a peacemaker in my day, but I I did I yeah I had to play middleman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you were saying, your mom probably was devastated, sending her one-year-old off, and then you come back the other side. Your other your extended family is devastated, losing that relationship now. So after you were adjusting to coming back to the United States of America and you saw how different it was, what were some of your, did you, first of all, I think the best question would be, did you have some preconceived ideas of what going back to America would look like? And were you surprised in a negative or positive way? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I have to say, one, I was coming back to be reunited with my parents. So there was, there was that excitement, like, yay, like Christmas day. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but then two, I was coming back to a place that I had no memory of. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we were landing, my dad told me, and I remember this so clear because I keep, and I still revisit it. Um, He said, you got on the plane as a Ghanaian, but when we landed JFK, you're black. And I had oh. no idea what that, I was like, okay. <laughs> you didn't know what it meant. No. And so I just, every single time something racial has happened to me, I just revisit that. And it, there's always another layer that I take from it. It's yeah. It's probably one of the most profound things he's ever said to me. Yes. Yes. I, um, I've always, I wondered until I just recently learned, um, I've been listening to this podcast, Seeing White, mm-hmm. call, um, from Seen on Radio by John Buen, and it's the, a fantastic explanation of how races came to be, like the creation of this black-white culture, right? How it's not normal, it was created, um, and how I always wondered, well, if there's not such a thing as black, how do Africans see themselves. And um, I remember learning that Africans see themselves in regard to different tribes. They don't see colors. Oh yeah. Back, I wasn't even Ghanaian when I was in Ghana. I was my tribe. I was a Shanti. And beyond being a Shanti, I was a Bonsu. Like I was 
myself. You, you are your individual, uh-huh. your family unit, and then your tribe next, just because, you know, we're in regions. Yes. Um, but I think what my dad was trying to get to me is that I am now being sterilized. I'm not Janice. I'm not a bone Sue. Yes. I'm only going to be judged first by what my skin color is. And then some, it would, the onus is on the, uh, the person to try and learn deep, more deeply into who I am. Um, that he would tell a six-year-old that. That's pretty deep. I, they, they cut no corners in exposing us. And really? Because it was very, I, we, were, we lived in an immigrant community. So uh-huh. all the good and bad that came into it, I saw. I saw people get deported. I saw people, you couldn't hide from it. So the, their response was to just introduce it to us. So you are aware from a very tender age of the harsh reality of how, of our systemic racism yeah. in the United States. And how did they express to you did they even need to? Were the actions that you were witnessing enough to express, hey, we're going to be treated differently and I know that and I'm on the defensive or, or what, what was it for you? My mom would often say, um, I don't know how she, it's she's obviously not in English, so I'm trying to, but essentially that this is not our place. Like this isn't our country, so to say. Even though it was very much, I'm like, ah, check my passport. It's my country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but to to mean that everything I have here, I have to constantly earn my place to for it. Um, and so I did feel that even if though I carried an American passport, there was a difference between me and some of my classmates. And I they didn't have to really say, hey, Janice, racism is aware around because my dad would come home one day and he he came home with a banana and he said someone left it in his mailbox like at work and, and it got to a certain point me and my little brother specifically but we were just like I think we were in denial and we're like no it, it just can't be this bad and I remember we would they would say something about oh like don't go there they, they don't want black people there I'm like no you don't know that like you know we're that everyone loves us you don't know that and mm-hmm. I think going through high school and into college it was a second reawakening that it wasn't that they were doing it to my parents. They were doing it to everyone. Um, and I think that's what we had to come into. I don't know. I always say, and this is a part where I need help vocal, you know, verbalizing this in the responsible way, but I'm an African American, but none of my family have the history of slavery in America as black Americans do. And it's always been so tough for me that people assume something of me because of my background. Mm-hmm. Half the time, I'm just like, I feel like if I were ancestrally from the U.S., I would be so livid. For me, this was mm-hmm. the first time one of my family was being exposed to call, being called a monkey or mm-hmm. um, you know, so many of these things that I just felt like, okay, they, they just hate us and we'll, we'll get over it. But to feel as if my family, generation after generation, was being dealt with, I can only imagine what Black Americans honestly go through in this country. There is a difference. Like I know my ancestors are, were happy in Ghana and yes, but it's so yes. different. Well, and you experience that happiness. You experience that contentedness with life. And you're still so optimistic, even in the face of this 
systemic problem, it's almost like, yeah, I'm affected, but they're affected more. Like you still almost see yourself as Ghanaian. Like I can hear that in what you're saying. Like I feel bad for the people who really have to put up with it. No, you're putting up with it too, even though you don't maybe see yourself on the same level as ancestors of, of Black Americans who have slavery in their previous generations. Mm -hmm. There was something you said about your mom that I wanted to go back and revisit. Oh, but she always said that this isn't kind of something to uh, presume that this isn't our country or something like yes. that. Yes. Um, in my classes, a lot of students felt the pressure to assimilate mm -hmm. instead of integrate. And um, on the upper level student, the, the higher verbal skills, we are able to have conversations about the difference of the two with me telling them, I don't want you to assimilate unless you want to. I want you to hold on to who you are at your core, your, your previous, your country of origin, your, your traditions, your, all these things that make you who you are. I don't want you to lose those. And it seems like most people in the United States would prefer that of immigrants and refugees instead of integrating, learning how to work together, holding on to what you value, but learning how to live together and appreciate the differences, but also have commonalities. We would have lots of discussions on integration versus assimilation. And it sounds like your mom um, felt pressured to assimilate. Would that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it wasn't that we thought what we had was inferior, um, but we knew that it would be weaponized against us. Mm -hmm. That if I talk about my village in Ghana, I see it in my mind as it is, but you see it as some place with mud on the walls. These are all things we, you know, where yeah. there are lions run, roaming around. And yes. It's things that people have told me. So. Uh -huh. So then it becomes, don't talk about that, Janice. Don't think about it. It's not, it, like your neighborhood is New Jersey. <laughs> like that, that's, that's where your story has to start because mm -hmm. no one can weaponize that against you or else they'll be admitting that what they have is also inadequate. Yes. That's a hard truth to hear, isn't it? Do you prefer, this is a question I've asked a few people, because I don't know how to ask it very well. Um, do you prefer to be called African-American or black? Or do you have a preference in what's the, the correct verbiage? Because some people are very particular about that and I want to respect that. And other people are just like, call me my name. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say it's, it's a tough one. And I respond and don't take offense to either as long mm -hmm. as it's um, it's not like directly offensive, but I think that, I mean, I'm American. I was born here. I'm in the military. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, I am Ghanaian. The only time I say I'm Ghanaian is when someone goes, well, where are you from from? Cause you know, when they want to yes. know, yes. when they want to know that extra layer, I'm like, okay, fine. I'm Ghanaian. But otherwise, like I'm American. And if I have to put a race on it, I'm black, American, African. It doesn't, they're all the it same. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem counterproductive to what I'm doing, which really frustrates me, is having to distinguish Black American. Yeah. I don't like that. I want to highlight 
that we have a problem that we are even having to distinguish based on this, because I personally don't believe in race, but we live in a society that does. So I'm having to use the terminology that society is using, which frustrates me. I just want to be like being in America, right? But we have to distinguish certain people have it harder in America than others. Naming it is important. Um, And it's once we strip all of the assumptions of what it is to be black that are negative that people have put on it, um, then the word becomes just just what it is when we say American. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's actually, I like that you're asking this because I feel like a lot of white people are like, what can I say? And it makes people timid. So for me, Janice, you can say either, you know, anything, but I know for some people, they are, they do feel very strongly um, about mm-hmm. African American versus black American. Mm-hmm. I think that would be very individualized. And it's okay to ask people. I would say, saying. just like we're saying, what, what are your preferred pronouns? I would just ask, like, yes. how do you identify? Yes. Even something that simple, I think a lot of people are scared to start with that first question. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't want to upset anybody. And in, in an effort to not upset or not rock the boat, we just don't do anything. Kind of like your experience in the emergency room. And so you don't know if people are for you or what they thought about that because we're afraid to, of what people are going to think. So going back to coming back to America, it sounds like you said you had to, racism revisited you once you got into college and you were, you didn't want to believe it as a child, but it was a constant in your life. It was something you witnessed and you saw all the time. Were there any incidents that stuck out to you as a child besides watching your dad come home with a banana or seeing, you know, something happen in your neighborhood that you go back to in your mind and be like, that was just horrible that that had to happen? Yeah. Um, I would say in high school, personally, in high school, um, (laughs) there was, so I don't see being black in America ever as being an advantage. It's just something I have to navigate with. Um, But in high school, um, for college, you know, sitting in algebra, and we're all kind of sharing the schools that we got into, and Mm -hmm. our teachers are some of the cool, fun teachers. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I remember I, um, and I always wanted to go to like Harvard or Johns Hopkins or Yale. I was like, these are people who are writing these books. I want to go learn from them. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was sharing, uh, it was my turn to share. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I got into Yale. And one of my classmates, uh, who I thought was my friend, <laughs> but he was like, oh, well, you probably only got in. Well, he didn't say it to me. He said, she only got in because she's black. And I heard it. And I am usually the be quiet and go stew at home. But mm-hmm. I was just so upset by this that I said to him, well, Cody, did you even apply? And he's like, well, no, but, and I was like, so how can you, because for me, what I heard was you took my spot. And I hear the same thing. People are like, oh, the immigrants are coming, taking our jobs. I'm like, did you even try? Do you even Uh compete for it? And you just sit and lament what could have been and take away from me because now 10 years later, I still think about that. And it goes into the whole imposter syndrome that's just like you didn't get this because you earned it Janice oh I'm sorry that you think that because you obviously 
earn every single thing that has come to you. You have worked so hard. That's the problem. So many people just don't know the other, air quotes, or um, have no experiences, or they just are letting their fear guide them. The whole idea of you would not believe in reverse discrimination if you ever saw real discrimination or felt it up close, would you? <laughs> like people crying, that's reverse discrimination. They shouldn't let all these people in either to the country or to this university or under whatever clause. Um, that's just plain fear speaking, I think. I agree. And you're not the first person to tell me the same thing, which makes me really sad that it's just very prevalent apparently. Mm-hmm. Anything, uh, you, anything you do. You know what I'm, I'm coming to understand from all these beautiful conversations I'm having and every single one of them has been. I mean, it's just been, I'm so lucky to get to talk to so many people. But what I'm hearing from every person and correct me if I'm wrong, is these are just the waters we swim in. It's the way it is. And you just keep going. I mean, it's a fact of life and you just make the most of what you have. Is that the way it is? But it is a sink or swim. You know, I've chosen to swim it this way, but I have black friends who I told the story of what happened to me in the ED and they're like, oh, well, I would have been fired that day because they just wouldn't. And, you know, I respect that because we all have our scars through life. Uh-huh. It broke. It was the straw that broke my camel's back in the sense that I was like, well, now I'm going to tweet it, which to me was such a momentous thing, like actually sharing to the masses. Yes. But someone else, the straw breaking her back would have been probably cursing out the old lady and walking out of the room, which I can't say would have been the wrong thing, you know? Yes. So it, it's very individualistic. I think Everything I do is always, I'm just like, just because someone has hurt me doesn't mean I have to hurt another person. I don't, Good for I don't you. Know yeah. And I think we all just adapt differently to our situation yes. and yes. it's not wrong. Yeah. We all have, it's a natural thing to want to defend yourself and we don't know how we're going to do it in the moment. None of us when that moment presents itself. So how would you say you've experienced microaggressions or as another guest of mine mentioned um, passive aggressiveness mm. towards you? I, I think they're both good words. I know some people do not like the term microaggression. Uh, it's kind of like a, it's like this water torture that drip, 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 <laughs> that constantness, That's right? That's what it is. I, so I don't like to catalog these things because they, they do happen very more often than I would like to admit. And it feels like, you know, like if, if you're wearing a backpack and every day someone like throws something else in it and you're just like, it. and I mean, I've been while wearing scrubs, a hospital ID, a scrub cap, very much wearing the uniform that I belong. Yeah. I've been accused of stealing things from the ED, from the emergency room. Um, I've been, you know, I get the, oh, not you, Janice, but some of these black people, I get that comment. I used to get mm. the comment, Oh, the lights are off. Where's Janice? Where'd she go? Um, that <laughs> I I just I don't even know where to start or stop. I just, uh-huh. I've got a lot of these situations where it's a lot and it hurts. And every time, like, so when that ED emergency room situation happened, 
it makes you relive everything else that you're carrying. And yes, but it taught me that carrying it and stewing in silence has not helped me at all. It's mm-hmm. just made me burned out and sad sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to speak about it and see what that brings me. Um, and so far it's been really cathartic. And good. <laughs> I, if, like you said, if, if what I say reaches one person, then I'm like, okay, fine. It wasn't all in vain. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't cry for nothing. Mm-hmm. So Twitter has been a good outlet for you. So surprisingly. Good. I'm always like, I just want to share positive things. And then, so that was just so hard for me to share something negative, but I just felt like if I was being, I, I was kept up late thinking about it. And I was uh-huh. like, this, this isn't, I'm, I'm not the victim here. This isn't something that I need to be up late thinking about. This is something that someone else needs to think about. Yes. It just, you're right. Cathartic is a good word. You had to get it out of your mind, off your chest to just rest and then let the rest of us chew on that and think about it. And oh my goodness, this is what one person had to deal with at work today. This isn't Right. None of us would have known. I mean, you are bringing awareness to so many people by sharing your experiences and you didn't even share it with an ounce of negativity, really. Oh, I didn't see no, it. it didn't come across that way. It was what I appreciate. And, and you know, I, I don't judge those who might have in that situation done that. That's, that's okay. Like I said, we want, we have the natural inclination to defend ourselves. Um, so I'm glad you found a way to, kind of empty that proverbial backpack a little bit. <laughs> exactly. That's actually a really good way to yeah, visualize it. Yeah. I was able to at least set it down. Actually, I was able okay. to set it down for a couple of days because the outpouring was so supportive that good. And you, I never am saying like, Oh, well that's all white women, but mm-hmm. I was really able to say, no, that is really just that lady because look at, everyone around who was supportive, who didn't look like me at all. Some people were like from different countries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this, this really was just this individual and she's someone's mom. So I hope someone's holding her accountable in their life, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, she just represents herself. How mature of you. I'm, I'm glad. I'm thankful to hear that you see it that way. And you see just individual people as individual people who need to own up and be responsible for their choices all of us, despite our nationality or ethnicity or anything. I mean, that's, that's what all of us should be doing to be good humans for the common good, right? Well, it sounds like you've experienced all the different versions of racism in your sweet short life. Have you heard somebody tell you they don't see color? Oh, no, I'm your friend Janice. I don't see color. And trying to, in their mind, think they're being very nice about it. I don't judge that at all. I see it as a spectrum or like phases because even when I was growing up, it was don't talk about race, don't talk about politics, that's polite. And then Mm -hmm. it became, well, just say you don't see race because that makes you more evolved, you know, that you treat everyone equally. And now we're in the phase of what you're doing, which is meaningful outreach to different communities in order to prove and, and remind us that we all all in this together and your mm-hmm. success and my success. And so when someone tells me they don't see race, I don't jump to judge them. I sure hope that they do because if you say you don't see color, what you're saying is you don't see my struggle because yes. I'm forced to see color. 
I don't want to know I'm the only black person in the room, but mm -hmm. I'm often, it, it's called out mm -hmm. and it's called out by people who don't look like me. Mm -hmm. So everyone treats me as if they see color. So just admit that you see color. Yes. How do you feel about the police? Do you have positive encounters or have you had negative encounters? Are you worried for certain people and not for others? Would you like to speak to that? I, I would like to address it. I think it's something that is among us, kind of like mm -hmm. you, you got to talk about it. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> my, my, I guess this should just say my relationship with the complete, with the police is complex. I don't personally living in a suburb in Ohio for, for me and my lived experiences, I can't say that I fear the police, but I don't trust them. I, I see it as a relationship where I'm uneasy when I see them because I'm like, oh gosh, Janice, you could be doing everything right and they can make up something that you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. I certainly have two, you know, six foot tall black brothers who I'm always in the back of my mind, like, oh my goodness, I hope that if they are stopped, that they are lucky. Mm -hmm. um, and so those things are very real, but yeah, I guess I can't say I trust, I don't know, my, my relationship with the police, like many black Americans is very complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, a very good way to put it. That's your experience. At the same thing, so I, I was in uh, college at Johns Hopkins when the Baltimore riots were happening. And Afterward, I um, did a, a research with the Poverty and Inequality Research Lab, but I went door to door to Baltimore City youth asking them about their narrative about the riot and what they think happened. And well, let me tell you, oh, wow. They're like, the, <laughs> people, not only do they fear the police, but actively have stories that demonstrate the police working against them, like, mm -hmm. you know, planting things that you know, weren't there. And when you think about that, you're just like, the system is broken. It's broken. Yes. Um, that they're very much, the community's broken. And it is. Uh, it that was, is an amazing job to have to go and actually hear the narratives of all the people living through that. Thank was, you for recording a lot of those oh, stories. Yeah, was, I, it's probably my favorite job, but I learned the most and it's informed my thing where I'm just like, just because someone has hurt me doesn't mean I want to hurt other people because mm -hmm. that's what I was hearing from those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And that's not the story that was broadcast to America. And I was no, just like, it's not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you said we can't, to the effect you said, we can't change something if we don't talk about it. And I think that's really wise to bring up this conversation about a broken system within the police department. Not all police are bad. Not all police are good. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be, we have a problem and we need to fix it. And there are a lot of people working towards good. And there are a lot of people trying to abuse their power. We just need to address it. Can we have the conversation of just addressing it? And it seems even asking for that conversation seems to spark so much frustration. At the same time, I'm like, there are good doctors and there are bad doctors. For sure. Doctors who do the procedure because they want the money and you don't actually need the procedure. And I would hope that the, the call isn't, okay, destroy all hospitals. The call, there you go. <laughs> the call is, okay, we have good doctors, we have bad doctors. The good doctors, and it's a part of our responsibility to report 
those who are, you know, overcharging to insurance companies who are doing procedures on patients who don't need it. And we pol police each other. And mm -hmm it helps give the public trust that yes you know so I, I just think that you're right we need to come to a point where people can let their defenses down and saying we're not criticizing you we are criticizing the situation and the system and you can be an active agent to fixing it amen you you said it beautifully <laughs> right there <laughs> where's the microphone we need to yeah, teach fix it there we go <laughs> Let's just start marching those streets and let Janice say that. That's beautiful. Well, and you've spoken to this already several times. It's much more complex than we like to think. We want to simplify all of this, black and white. And it's not that simple. We're complex humans. It's a complex society, complex ethnicities. And that takes time to shuffle through and pull out the good and the bad and it's just, it's not as simple as we would like to make it, is it? It took 300 years and counting to build this broken system. And we need to give each other grace and time to, to change all of that. We've been trained to live in a world that was colored. And mm -hmm. I think what you're doing is so commendable, honestly. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I really wanted, especially when I saw um, some of the other features that you have. And I was like, this is a conversation that I think will reach people who need to hear it um, because you have access to communities that I don't have access to. Yes. And this is what I want white allies to do. I want you to say, how can I bring this voice or this story to my community in a way that's not threatening? And exactly. That's how you get the access and, and make the change that we want. Mm -hmm. That's the key word, not threatening. Yeah. And I don't know why it feels that way to people. I mean, people don't like being put on defense and True. having fingers being pointed. And even if some, and I get that way too. People are like, oh, like, you know, black people and black and black crime. I feel like they're pointing fingers at me. And so I can understand how mm -hmm. people will get defensive mm -hmm. um, because we all identify with our groups. Yes. Um, but we need to expand this group notion and, and you know, make it a little bit more wholesome. <laughs> Yes, we do. I don't know, you probably haven't had to read this book. <laughs> I have. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. I think you uh, already have a pretty good grasp on that concept. Um, although I was very struck by his very telling narrative of how he was actually even working through anti-racism. I it was the first time I learned that even uh, black people can be racist towards each other. And I assumed that that was not the case. So that was extremely eye-opening for me. Um, but in that book, he mentions that racism is not caused by hate and ignorance, but by self-interest. That just made me stop and put the book down and just, hmm, what do I think about this? So because it's caused me quite a great pause, I like to ask my guests, what their take on that is and not everyone agrees and that's okay that's why we converse about it but i like to hear your opinion hmm. well first of all i'm, I'm uh, black people racism is learned and yes. i do feel uh, we all know so i think it is possible for uh, black people to be racist against other black people and the the conversation of colorism obviously comes in there too yes. But regarding that quote, I'm also struck, and I'm glad you've highlighted it, 
I can't say I agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think that, um, I think all three are at the root of racism. I think it starts with ignorance. Like, for example, um, the kid from my class who mm -hmm. was like, he probably thought, oh, how did Janice get into Yale? And the next thing was his self-interest that was, I wanted this, mm -hmm. but I was afraid to put myself out there for it. Mm -hmm. And what it led into, the product of that equation is always hate. And it was that hateful comment that he made toward me. And mm -hmm. I think that whether it was willingful or not, there's no small act of racism or discrimination. And this is the end product. And that's why we have to be so aware of how we speak and treat one another. Um, I think that the quote, actually, I'm, I'm, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm a little upset by it because mm -hmm. I feel like it's a little, it, it's, it's a little excusatory. Like it's trying to give excuses that mm -hmm. you're not doing anything really bad. You're just protecting yourself and being selfish. You're just being a little selfish. You're not being racist. You're being a little selfish. Oh. That's all. I can see how you say that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I really like how you phrased it in the form of an equation. What was it? Ignorance plus self-interest always yields hate. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? That is going to be, I'm going to meditate on that for a long time after this conversation. You've given me so much to think about, but I can keep that equation in my mind and judge my actions against that for sure in any situation that's fascinating thank you for sharing your opinion thanks for sharing the quote that it's very interesting one and i can only imagine it's come from a way to like i said you have to find a non-threatening way to bring people into the conversation sure. and there is some self-interest there but there's a little bit more to it as well for sure well and and mr kendy that's his life experience and that's fine for him. That's great that that's what he's experienced in his life and, and has the freedom to share. And we all have the freedom to share our opinion and discuss it. And sadly, we've lost that in our polarized culture. Depending, it doesn't matter what ism we're talking about. The polarization of all of us has kept productive dialogue um, sidelined, sadly. Well, we've made it to the end and I value your time and your opinion and you as a person. And I just want to thank you for this. I want to end with our closing questions um, that are always, they touch my heart so much. Not that the whole interview doesn't, but these closing questions just always make my heart smile usually. What is your one tip to make the world a better place? You know, we, we've talked about before, I think that if you want to make the world a better place, realize that everyone's lives and lived experiences are very different from you. It's like kind of what I said before, just because someone hurts you doesn't mean you have to hurt them. Like humanity is so evolved because we know better than to just act on pure reflex mm -hmm. and give people the grace that you want and um yeah i think that's a very simple easy way i tell myself that all the time actually when that lady did that i said that to myself under the mask 
I say every single time I say, just because you've hurt me doesn't mean I have to hurt you. And vocalizing it helps me. I'm not perfect, <laughs> but it does help me remember who I am. That is so thought provoking. We just need to take a minute and just absorb that. What if we all did that? That knee jerk reaction that we all have. What is it that there's some sort of I'm talking to a doctor now. There's something that rushes from our brain, right? That causes that reaction. Mm -hmm. And if we would take time, breathe, let it pass. I think I read something that you have about within 10 seconds, that urge leaves your body. And if you just like waited 10 seconds, none of us would say things we would regret later. And that's it. I just want to go to bed knowing that I didn't do anything I, I regret or would dishonor my family. Yeah. What are you the most thankful for right now? Oh, my village. I, which I think, you know, is so much bigger than I initially thought. Um, I'm very grateful. I, I gotta say, it seems like in people like my life has been very straightforward, but so many twists and turns. And I think that God has really put people in my life at the right moment, um, to reminding me to keep going and why I'm doing this. And I'm just so grateful. It's, I can't even just say family because it's much beyond family at this point. Yeah. Yes. First of all, that's beautiful. It's making me tear up that that five years of your life spent in Ghana is still affecting change in your life and the way you see yourself, the way you see the world, the way you interact with people. That's incredible. That shows how important what we give children at young ages affects their life, how it changes, how it influences their lives. That time, that attention, that love, the things you don't know you're passing on and teaching, the, the situations they find themselves in, all of that just leads to who they become as an adult. And you are better off for living with your village in Ghana. Mm, I love that story. I love that. Okay. What is your favorite quote? Oh, okay. I like this question. I'm really bad at, I, I don't know who says things and oftentimes I do mess them up. So this is a quote that I at least know from beginning to end. <laughs> And it's so applicable in my life. Um, It's that success is not final and failure is not fatal. Um, We'll we'll find out. Don't worry. I'll I'll look that one up. (laughs) Not final. Failure is not fatal. I have had, I've applied to medical school twice. I have. Really? Yeah. Like I've just had. I've lost deep, deep people in my life who, you know, at every moment, everything feels like it's catastrophic and how will I ever move on? Mm-hmm. And it, it passes. And so even the worst failures I've had have passed and all the successes I've had, I haven't rested on them because I know that my journey goes on. And I just always, it's kind of like the, the mantra in the back of my mind. That's like, this is not final. The storm runs out of rain, like all these things to just keep going. Janice, you are so inspirational to me. I am so thankful I got to meet you. That's my thankful today. We do thankfuls every night at dinner. And um, 
often the days I get to interview people, the new friendship I've made, the connection I've made, the stories I've heard from each new friend has, is my thankful every day. That's Thank a, you for I, your time. I bring that to my family too. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> I'm very Can't thankful for you and for this opportunity to share my story. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much, Janice. I appreciate you and your time. Um, we're all, we all have a lot to think about now that uh, we've heard Janice's story. What emotional fortitude Janice has. To see that the way this woman in the ER treated her was more a reflection of that woman and her problems she was dealing with in life than it did about Janice herself. Although it stung, she refused to be the victim. By sharing that story, Janice was able to release the burden of carrying one more insult by herself and let those around her feed her soul with encouragement, validation, and support. Another incredible quote by Janice that I personally think should be made into t-shirts, posters, and heralded from the mountaintops is the idea that we're not criticizing you. We're criticizing the situation and the system, and you can be an active agent in fixing it. That, my friends, is speaking truth to power. I'm incredibly grateful Janice spelled it out for us. This is what I want white allies to do. How can I bring this voice or this story to my community in a way that's not threatening? That's how you get the access and make the change we want. That's one practical step we can each take towards racial equality. Her insight about when you experience people talking down to you, microaggressions, or outright blatant racism, it makes you relive everything else you're carrying. That trauma, that wound, never has time to heal because that scar keeps getting cut open again and again. Those of us who don't experience this have no right to say how those who do should deal with it. I'm so thankful Janice has found a cathartic way to heal by speaking up and out about how racism is affecting her. The longer we hold on to negative emotions and experiences, the more resentment it builds. But Janice is the opposite of bitter. She exudes peace, forgiveness, and compassion. The idea that we can't change something unless we speak about it is a powerful healing truth. All I know is that when I grow up, I want to be just like Janice. She emanates love, patience, benefit of the doubt, inclusion, and just genuine compassion for others. From her time with the Poverty and Inequality Research Lab, Janice did the beautifully hard work of listening to story after story of how people were brutalized and betrayed by the police during the Baltimore riots. She witnessed firsthand the broken system in a broken community, and it broke her heart, yet it also educated her. And yet, the message that stuck with her after hearing all these sorrowful narratives was, just because someone has hurt me doesn't mean I want to hurt other people. She repeated this phrase three times during our conversation, which tells me this is a lived ideal she centers her life around. And it was proven true in her response to the vileness shown against her by a patient she was trying to help. May we all remember who we are, just as Janice has. 
Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.